Hi, listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofero, and produced by Dougie Center, the National Grief Center for Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. Hey listeners, thanks so much for your patience as we had almost a month-long break between new episodes. On paper, the break was because of time I spent out of the office on vacation, but now that I'm finally back, I'm realizing it was helpful to wait on releasing this episode until this week. That's because a new study just came out a few days ago, a study updating the estimates for how many children across the globe have been affected by the death of a parent or kinship caregiver from COVID-19. The latest numbers estimate that 10.5 million children have had one parent or caregiver die from the disease, and that within that 10.5 million, 7.5 million of them have had both parents or caregivers die due to COVID. While many countries, including the U.S., are moving into a new phase of living with COVID-19 and the pandemic is falling out of the daily news cycle, the reality of these losses continues to sink in for the children, teens, partners, spouses, and others left behind. Alyssa and her four children are one of these families. Their beloved husband and father, Bryce, died in late December of 2021 from COVID-19. Melissa spent weeks traveling between their hometown in northern Utah to the hospital in Salt Lake City, where Bryce was receiving treatment. As is common for many who are hospitalized with COVID-19, it was a roller coaster. Some days, things would look to be improving, and then just as suddenly, things would take a turn for the much worse. While Lissa and Bryce had weathered previous stints in the hospital with his health, this time was different. Lissa wasn't able to sleep in the room with him, and their four young children weren't able to visit. While she was traveling between home and the hospital, Lissa did everything she could to keep her kids informed about their dad's health and to answer their questions honestly. Since his death, she's continued to encourage them to come with her with their reactions and questions and struggles. Lissa has also been surrounded by the type of support most folks who are grieving can only dream about. So if you're someone who is grieving, you might find yourself feeling envious. If you're someone who wants to know how to show up for your friends and family, take a few notes from Lissa's community. Okay, here's our conversation. Lissa, thank you so much for making time to be part of the show today on Grief Out Loud. I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thank you so much for having me, Jenna. It's an honor to be here. Let's start with you and Bryce. How did the two of you meet? So we met because I dated his best friend, and through a series of events, we were introduced to each other and by that friend, and that just kind of was it, you know, once I met him, it was like, this is, we spent a lot of time together as friends. Um, he invited me up to his hometown where he's from, which was a few hours away from where we lived when we were in college. We'd only known each other a few weeks, and went up, he did a golf tournament with his dad and his brothers, and I met his family. We were just friends, so it was completely no pressure. It wasn't like a girlfriend situation, and I just 
I was worried about that three hour drive. Like, I hardly know this person. How are we going to talk? This is going to be so awkward. And it just, there wasn't a moment of silence or awkwardness. We were, we just hit it off. And I remember thinking how fun he was and that he's someone we could sit in a completely empty room with nothing. And it would be the funnest thing that I had ever done. He just was so fun to be with. And we dated for about six weeks and then we were engaged for three months and then we were married for 13 years. 13 years. And what was it like being married to Bryce? Always fun. (laughs) We had a lot of friends and family that would talk about how the first year of marriage was so hard or such an adjustment, but we never felt that. It just was really a piece of cake from the get-go. He was a really wonderful, attentive husband. He would surprise me with really thoughtful gifts, surprise getaways. He'd come home early from work and shoo me out the door to go have a massage or send me flowers just because. A great dad. He reminds me a lot of the dad in the cartoon Bluey, if you've ever seen that. Um, (laughs) He's just like never too cool or too busy to be silly or fun or do whatever the kids want to do. If it was dress up with the girl or a silly dance, or he made all the character voices when he would read books. And, you know, he just was so much fun and really involved with the kids. He knew how they liked their sandwiches and who their friends were at school and all those kinds of things. We had a lot, I mean, 13 years, I don't think anybody's married for 13 years without facing challenges of some kind, but our relationship was never, was never one of those. So you had a really solid partnership with which to face those inevitable challenges that happened over the 13 years. Absolutely. I always felt like I could face anything, you know, if we were together. And then a challenge occurred in late 2021 that really came right into the middle of your relationship and that Bryce was diagnosed with COVID-19. And I wonder what, what did you start thinking about when you heard that he had tested positive? So we actually all had it as a family at the same time. I had it and our four kids got it. Um, We were all, we had it very, very mild compared to him. I was not, I was worried about him when I wasn't overly concerned He and I were both fully vaccinated, um, and Bryce had had a lot of health struggles over the years. He had had three kidney transplants. Um, He had sepsis six times. He just had over a dozen, dozen stays in the ICU over the course of our marriage. He spent four years on dialysis that we did from home, dozens of other surgeries and procedures throughout those years. So I was very familiar with hospital time, even ICU time. And he had been very, very sick before, but always fought through it and came home to us. So I, I was worried, but not, not overly concerned. You're like, I've seen him go through this before, not this because it wasn't COVID, but I've seen him go through some other major health challenges and he's always come through. Yes. Yeah. I mean, very, very sick with sepsis, but yeah, always, always fought through it. It, When did that start to shift for you? You know, there were a lot 
there were a lot of ups and downs. Um, I think it really shifted for me when he, so when he first went in, he was sick at home with COVID for about a week, 10 days before it got bad enough that we needed to go to the hospital. When we first went, it was just to our local hospital in our city where we were. And they have an ICU, but not a COVID ICU. And so the first two days he was there in the ICU. And I think it really shifted for me when they had to intubate him after two days. And because their hospital didn't have the ability to have a patient on a long-term vent, uh, he was life flighted down to another hospital. And I think seeing him, seeing him leave on that life flight helicopter was, it got more real. And this was in December of 2021, where, you know, things had, things were a little bit different than they were early on in, in 2020, where nobody else could be in the hospital and there was just no contact. What was it like when Bryce was in the hospital and, you know, you have four kids and how did you all stay connected? Could you go see him? It was very challenging. So that was, he was in the hospital for six weeks total. Um, like I said, those first two days, he was local to where we were. The kids could not go visit, but I could go be with him. After he was life lighted, uh, the hospital that they took him to was in Salt Lake City, which was about 90 miles away from where we live. What I would do, well, I had to have, because I had had COVID, I had to have a negative test before I could go to the hospital. And uh, then once I entered the room, I had to wear an N95 and a surgical mask. I had to wear um, full personal protective equipment, so the gown and the gloves. So I would spend the weeks and go be with him down there Monday through Friday. Um, his sister lived just a few minutes away from the hospital, so I would go home at night and stay with her and then go back to the hospital in the morning. But they had very strict visiting hours. Any other time he had gone to the hospital or spent time in the hospital, I would stay with him. I would sleep in the hospital room with him, but I wasn't able to do that this time. So, yeah, I would be with him during the week. And then on the weekends, I would go home and be with our kids. We had family come in and take care of the kids while I was with him at the hospital during the weeks. And then when I would be home with the kids on the weekend, we would have other friends and family go visit him on the weekend, but there was only one visitor allowed per 24 hour period. His siblings would go spend a day or one of his parents would go spend a day with him. And there were multiple daily text updates to everybody about how he was doing because no one could come in and see him. And a lot of them didn't, didn't see him sick. And when he was in the hospital for those, you know, extended period of time, those weeks, were you able to communicate with him? Um, obviously before he was intubated, he was awake and alert and I was able to talk to him. Once he was intubated, uh, he was pretty sedated and they would sometimes try to every few days kind of wean him off the sedation and see if they could get him to wake up a little bit and check his functions and things. Towards the end of his six weeks, he started to improve. And they were able to take him off the ventilator and take him off the sedation. And he was able to be more awake and responsive, never to the point where we could full on communicate. He couldn't talk. I mean, he'd had, he'd had a vent tube down his throat for 
way too long to be able to get that back without a bunch of therapy. It was mostly things like, hey, open your eyes. And he would open his eyes on command or wiggle this toe or squeeze my hand or he would do some head nods or some head shake. But there was not any conversation or real real talking back and forth. We did do FaceTime with the kids. When I was at the hospital, I would FaceTime them every night and they always wanted to see him and how he was doing. So that time before he was intubated was really the last time you got to hear his voice. Yes. And how were you and the other, you know, family members talking with your kids and answering their questions? Because I, you know, I think sometimes we have this idea that a, an illness, a hospital stay is very linear, right? You're either progressively getting better or you're progressively declining. And it sounds like with your experience and what I've heard from other families with COVID-19 too, it's very up and down and up and down and kind of hard to have a clear sense of where things are going. Yes. I really tried to answer their questions and be honest with them. I wasn't, I didn't keep secrets. I didn't withhold information, but I also didn't want to give them too much information and freak them out. So I would keep things surface like he's been a little bit more awake today, or, you know, they, they're worried about his liver today. They're doing some more tests and we'll know more tomorrow. Those kinds of things. I didn't get into all the nitty gritties of numbers and those kinds of things. I really went back and forth about them seeing him over FaceTime, particularly when I thought he was going to get better. I didn't want to traumatize them and have them have those images in their brain and in their memory. But they started asking. They wanted to see him. And he had been in there long enough that I felt like they had an idea of how sick he was and that maybe by not showing them their dad, their imaginations were making it worse than it actually was. There's always that concern too, is their brain imagining something even worse than what is actually happening? At least if they see it, they their imagination doesn't have to run wild. And then how did you talk with them once Bryce did die? Like, how did you share that news with them? Yeah. So like I said, he, um, he had been doing better about two, about two weeks before he passed away, two or three weeks before he passed away. He had had a really bad day. They were really worried about things. And so I called my mother-in-law who was with the kids and said, I'd like you to bring the kids down to be with me tomorrow. And I need to have a conversation with them in person, kind of prepare them for some things. So she brought them down. And then, of course, the next day, he was doing a little bit better. So we didn't have as much of that conversation, I think, as we would have if he hadn't had a better day that day. But they were 11, 9, 8, and 2 and a half. And we had a conversation, and I said, Daddy's... I know you know daddy has COVID. He's been sick for a really long time. He's really sick. He might not make it. He's had a really good day today. So hopefully that means things are going to be improving, but he's not better yet. And he might 
not come home from this, but nobody's giving up. Daddy is still fighting very, very hard. I'm fighting hard. The doctors and nurses are doing everything that they can. So even though he is really sick and he might not make it, we're not, we're not giving up. In that sense, they were a little bit prepared. I think the weeks, a couple weeks before, we didn't really talk about it again. And then he started to slowly improve. Um, and he was transitioned out of the COVID ICU and went to a transitional ICU. They took him off the vent. They'd weaned him off the sedation. and He was a little more awake and alert. He'd started doing physical therapy. That was on a Friday. I came home to spend the weekend with the kids, was talking with the kids that night about how much better he was doing. And we were hoping, this was the beginning of December, we were hoping that he would be in a skilled nursing facility closer to home by Christmas, you know, and everybody was so excited. And and then I was woken at three o'clock in the, in the morning by a phone call from the ICU that um, his heart had stopped. He was having some seizures and they hadn't been able to get the seizures to stop and they weren't sure what was going on. My brother had come to visit and was staying with the kids at the time. And so I woke him up and told him what was going on. And he is a trauma anesthesiologist. So I think he knew based on what I said, probably even more than I did. He knew what was coming. So I woke him up and told him what was going on. And I said, I'm going down to a hospital to figure out what's up. And I'll let you know, you know, when I need you to bring the kids down because I'd gotten alarming phone calls from the ICU doctors before worried about Bryce. And I'd had to rush home or rush back to Salt Lake from home. And then I got, by the time I got there, things were fine. And so I didn't want to wake up the kids and freak them out if, if everything was just going to be fine. I got down to Salt Lake and he was not better. Things were pretty steadily declining. And so I called my brother and said, whenever the kids wake up in the morning, I want you to bring him down. I felt like it needed to come from me. I needed to have that conversation with him. And so they got there the next morning and because of COVID kids weren't allowed in the hospital at all, unless they were patients. They did make an exception for us and let the kids come in to the hospital, but they had to sit, we had to sit in the foyer outside of the secure ICU door. We just were over in a little corner by the elevators. And I told them that their dad had fought really hard for a really long time. Um, but COVID had been too much for his body and it was tired and broken and his body couldn't do it anymore. And he, he was going to die. There were a lot of tears, understandably, lots of yelling. There was some angry outbursts. There was some denial. They all kept asking to see him. They weren't allowed in the ICU. Uh, the hospital opened up a meditation room. We went in there and we did a FaceTime and the kids each got the chance to say goodbye to him. So I've still not sure I handled it right. I think I 
might question that for a really long time. It's not a conversation anyone's ever really ready for or something that a lot of people are prepared for. But I, I knew that I needed to talk to them about it and that it needed to come from me because when I was a teenager, my mom passed away from stage four colon cancer. And that was the fact that she was going to die was not a conversation that we ever had as a family. She wasn't ready to talk about it. And I think by the time she was ready, she was too sick. Even though she'd had a long illness and we watched her decline, we we weren't prepared. It was It was a shock. It was really important for you that your kids have the information and to have more awareness of what was happening. Absolutely. And important to me that it also came from me because I hope or I think it gave them the sense that we were in this together, that I wasn't afraid to talk about it. I'm not scared of their grief. We were in it together and I didn't want them to feel isolated or like they couldn't talk to me about things. So just wondering, like, here you are as a family, you're in it together. Your beloved husband, beloved father has died and has died of COVID-19. And I know for some families, this isn't true for everyone, but for some families, COVID-19 comes with some stigma. Just wondering if that's anything that you or your kids have had to navigate. Um, a little bit. I I wouldn't say, I don't know that they were, I would say shame, but Definitely some stigma. I felt like when we were in the hospital, we were in an area where a lot of people are unvaccinated and didn't believe either that COVID was real or that vaccines would work and be helpful. And so I felt very much this, um, this like deeply rooted need to almost walk around the hospital with a sticker on that says like we were vaccinated like I promise you know we we did everything we could to not be here and we are anyways but it's not because of negligence or miseducation or a defiance or anything like that I did have a couple of people that um Bryce worked with, like did some contracts and deals with on the side that reached out to me when they found out he was in the hospital with COVID and um, they did believe that COVID was real. They said some really hurtful things. They blamed me for him being sick and being in the hospital. We were saying that we shouldn't have gotten the vaccine. They kept saying, just get him out of the hospital and just get him home. You know, don't let the doctors treat you. Don't let them give you anything. I was nice the first few interactions. And then I kind of just went atomic <laughs> on them. And I just was like, look, no one wants him to get better more than I do. I, I promise you. So just trust that I'm doing all that I can to get him better. I realized that you think I can just bring him home and have him get better at home, but you don't see how sick he is. You have no clue. 
and I, I'm glad you don't have to see him so sick. It's it's traumatizing and really awful to watch this person that you know is happy and joyful and full of life and kind and warm just wasting away like that. But understand that I am seeing that and I am making the best decision that I feel like I can for the person that I love the most. You do enough second guessing of your decisions and the information that you have in that time, you know, you're making life and death decisions for your spouse. What you need is support and you do plenty of blame and the what if game in your own mind. You don't need other people to play that out for you and put that on you. And I, I would say that was definitely only a handful of people that we had to reach out and everyone else was very supportive, very kind. Um, yeah, but there were those, there were those few that I just could not, could not believe it. Initially I was nicer about it because like I said, they were business contacts of Bryce. And I thought when he wakes up, if he sees that I went crazy <laughs> on him, he's going to be so annoyed, you know, like, Liz, you know, they're crazy. Just let them be crazy. And you don't have to, don't let them drag you into the mud. Right. But I just, I just couldn't do it anymore. And he had visited with me before about, you know, things that they had shared with him about COVID. And, and so I knew that he and I, felt the same about these people in this particular situation. And so I, I felt justified in knowing like he would agree with what I'm, what I'm doing and how I'm handling it. I'm curious, listen, you may not know this because I know sometimes kids are pretty private in their grief, but do you have a sense for your kids of being back at school and with friends of how they've how to navigate, like letting people know that their dad died and that their dad died of COVID and if they've run into any of, you know, similar kinds of reactions? Um, a little, they have a little bit. They've shared things here or there about, you know, so-and-so in my class doesn't think that COVID is real. or So the, our kids became eligible for the vaccine about a week after two, a week or two after Bryce passed away. And so we took them and got them their vaccines and, and they got some flack from some kids at school. I wouldn't say any of their friends, but uh, about it, but I just said, look, guys, you, you know, that it's real. You, you saw it, you watched it and what it can do to people. And we might be young and healthy, but not everybody that we interact with is. And so I think there there has definitely been some social struggle, I think, for them. But for the most part, they've had a lot of support. And it's something that we have open conversations about at home all the time. They have that refuge that they can come home and talk about it and ask questions and know that you're going to be present with them and honest with them about, you know, kind of how to navigate those situations. That's the hope. <laughs> <laughs> You've mentioned a few times that you've had some really supportive family and friends and community. What types of support have been the most helpful for you and your kids in these last few months? Gosh, we really have had so, so much. Um, 
within a few days of his passing, all of my kids' teachers at school, the school psychologist and the principal came to the house. They each brought my kid a gift. They spent one-on-one time with each of my kids. They asked me what we needed. They offered, um, you know, resources for local grief counseling and therapy groups and those kinds of things. Um, Their teachers also made special allowances for the kids during the school days when they need someone to talk to. Um, They all have a safe place to go and a safe person to talk to. A lot of times it's each other. um, And the teachers have been really good about allowing my kids to pull each other out of class and cry in the hall for a minute and do what they need to do and, and be there for each other. Bryce passed away a couple weeks before Christmas. So we had a lot, a lot of service and donations and surprises and food left on our doorstep, gift cards in our mailbox. I don't think any of them had names assigned to them. I don't know who any of them came from. I hadn't bought any Christmas gifts because I was waiting for Bryce to wake up so that we could do that together. And some of his coworkers and our church friends got together and did Christmas for our whole family. They just took all the kids Christmas lists and made it happen. We live in Northern Utah, so we get a lot, a lot of snow. I had neighbors come over and snow throw my driveway and shovel my sidewalks and my front steps. Um, a lot of times I would still be awake at three, four in the morning and I'd hear somebody out there shoveling my driveway. We've had lots of extended family support and they have taken kids to special events or teach them golf. Bryce was a big golfer. Um, They would do things with them that they would normally enjoy with Bryce, things that especially I don't know much about. I'm not a golfer. (laughs) (laughs) So that's very nice that they can kind of help fill that spot a little bit. I have a neighbor who comes and takes my toddler one day a week for the whole day. She's just like, I, I have her the whole day. You do whatever you need to do. Sleep, errands, doctor's appointments, massage. You know, you just, I have her all day. And she doesn't miss a week. I have another friend that texts every Sunday night. And she says, I know you're sitting and you're planning out your week. Where do you need me? What can I do? No, do you need a meal one night? Does so-and-so need a ride somewhere? Do you need babysitting? Do you need me to clean your house? I have three sister-in-laws that live really close within about 30 minutes. And they each take a night, a weeknight. And they come and they bring dinner. They do the evening madness of dinner, showers, bedtime, clean up dinner, help with any stuff around the house, laundry, whatever else. My birthday was less than two months after Bryce had passed away. And I had a neighbor drop by about a week before my birthday and grabbed my kids. And she took my kids to go buy birthday presents for me because my oldest was worried about mom, who will buy you presents? I'm like I'll buy myself something. It'll be okay. <laughs> you know, but this friend heard about that and she wanted my kids to be able to give me a present. I've had other neighbors that, both of my boys' birthdays fell during the time that Bryce was in the hospital and she threw them. She did huge birthday parties. He went into the hospital about a week before Halloween and I had planned to make homemade Halloween costumes. And of course that did not happen. (laughs) And so I reached out to a group of friends in my neighborhood and I just said, 
I'm not being picky. We'll, t we'll take whatever costumes you have in these size. And within 30 minutes, I had about 12 costumes on my doorstep for my kids to choose from. Melissa, it's like your community and your family and your friends. It's like they wrote the guidebook that we would like to write of like how to support someone when their person has died. Just like people showing up in all these really tangible, consistent, available ways. It's it's pretty amazing. It is. It is absolutely amazing. We have had every form of support that you could imagine and then some. It's been really, really incredible. I know that probably no one is, is as lucky as we are in that department. And we, we are very lucky. <laughs> and then, and yet there's all this support, which helps there not be additional layers of challenge on top of the grief, mm -hmm. but that type of support doesn't really take the grief away. And so wondering like you as a wife, as a mom, like, what has grief been like for you? What has it felt like? What has it looked like? Yeah, it's very tricky to balance my grief with my kids' grief. You know, a lot of times my grief wants me to lay in bed all day, <laughs> but my kids need me. I have to do right by them and I have to do right by their dad. You know, if they only have one parent left, I need to be the best one that I can be. So I've really tried to make a hierarchy of grief needs <laughs> in our home. And my needs come first because I can't take care of them if I don't have my needs met. But then their needs come and then their wants before anything I want. Sometimes it's very very difficult to sort out my wants and my needs. It takes a lot of mental energy, particularly in grief. And I know I've made missteps with it, but I really have tried to remind myself that I am not the only one grieving. And I have a lot more emotional intelligence and tools at my disposal, just based on my age and experience than they do. I have an obligation to help them work through it. It's a, like you said, it's such a tricky balance, right? Of where do I make space for my grief? How do I still be there for them and their grief? And I feel like that's where that community support is so helpful and that there's times where the kids are taken care of. So you have a little bit more space to just be in your grief. Absolutely. There's definitely that space for, you know, oh, today's a rough day. I'm going to need a little extra time to sit in my grief. I can call so-and-so and they'll come take my kids for a little while. And then I'll have time to just deal with what I need to deal with. Or, you know, I need to make this phone call or handle this arrangement that is really difficult and emotional. I'll do it when I know all the kids have somewhere to be or, and so kind of having, yeah, a pocket for all of those things to go and to fit in and to know that um, when the kids are all taken care of or in a safe place or where they need to be, I can take my, my jar of grief sand off the shelf and uh, then, I, then I can work through it. Alyssa, as we come kind of to the end of our conversation, 
I'm wondering, and I don't really know how to phrase this question. So if it comes out all wonky, we'll just see how it goes. But just wondering, like, I guess I'll just ask this, like, what does the fact that Bryce died of COVID-19 during a pandemic mean to you? Um, it's hard, I think. Yeah. He was so much more than how he died, which is true of every person that lived and passed away. It's very easy for society at large, I don't want to necessarily say people, but society at large to just look at the sheer number, the sheer volume of COVID deaths and just be like, wow, that's a lot. That's a really big number. But if you can break that down into, like you see the number 1 million written out with all those zeros and wow, that's a lot. But if you were to see 1 million hash marks, it is so much more impactful to me. I try to remember that each one of those million is a hash mark and each hash mark has left a hole, a wake, a path of devastation, the size that Bryce left, which is massive. And I think if we are going to help our kids process these things moving forward, we need to really be able to look at that and not turn away from it. It's triggering, obviously, to have your loved one's cause of death be in the news and a near constant topic of conversation. It just really cannot be avoided. When Bryce was in the hospital, there were billboards all over our state showing quote unquote patients intubated and in the ICU, encouraging people to get vaccinated. It was kind of hard to see those because Bryce was actually intubated and in the ICU. Also, it being in the news and what people talk about, it's brought a lot of questions for my kids. You know, they see billboards, they see signs in people's yards. Um, they hear kids talking about it at school at recess. Um, there's been some blaming themselves for bringing COVID home from school, even though we don't know where we got it. And they all wore masks at school and we took every precaution that we could. So we don't actually know and it doesn't really matter anyway. So we've had a, lo a lot of those conversations with it being very current, I would say it has allowed us to have some conversations about things that my kids probably would have just kept inside for years. In that way, it hasn't been all bad. It has kind of forced us to talk about things or my kids to voice their questions in a time and in a way that they maybe wouldn't have. Um, and also, like I said, it's hard to have your loved one's cause of death in the news. You want to focus on their life and who they were when they were here. You don't want to dwell on their death. But when you see and hear reminders every day about the way they died instead of how they lived, 
that can be really hard to do. Well, Alyssa, I just really want to say thank you for coming on the show today, for sharing with me and with our listeners about your experience and, and more importantly, about Bryce, about who he was, about the kind of father and husband and just the, the joy that he brought to your life to be able to, to share about that and for just being really open and, and willing to talk with me today. I'm just really grateful for your time. Thank you. I appreciate your time as well and the opportunity to share about Bryce in our life and tell our story and and keep him alive in our hearts. Well, listeners, I thank you as well each and every time for being part of the community out there. Lissa was a listener and reached out to me. And so if you would like to reach out to me, you can email me at griefoutloud at dougie.org. It's D-O-U-G-Y dot O-R-G. That is also our website where you can find all of the past episodes of Grief Out Loud, information about our local peer grief support group programming, as well as free activity sheets, tip sheets, and other resources for kids, teens, young adults, and family members as well. And I'm also excited to share with you that this podcast is sponsored in part by the Chester Stephan Endowment Fund. So thanks again for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time.